Have you ever wanted to get better at finishing things well? I think there's a trait that we are really good at starting new things, just not so great at finishing them. Or we're really good at, at getting excited about things, but at some point we realize that it's hard, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, and so we tend to want to walk away or even just take the easy road out. About 10 years ago, some buddies and I, we thought it'd be a good idea to run the Warrior Dash. And it happened to fall on my birthday in the Midwest, in Missouri, in July. And so it was like 110 degrees. And we're at the water table, and Courtney was pregnant with Emma. And it was so hot, Courtney passed out, like fainted. Of course, we thought it was still a good idea to run this thing. And uh, you can see me there with the bandana on, ready to go. I was ready to take the hill. And the Warrior Dash is like the Tough Mudder. You got to climb a you know, rope wall. You got to swim in mud underneath barbed wire. You have to do scrambling and all these things. And uh, it's about 110 degrees, full humidity. And I'm, I, I get about, I don't know, an eighth of the way through it. And I start seeing people turn around and go back. It's like, okay, this isn't a good sign, right? But I'm going to finish it, I said. So I get about a quarter of the way through it and make the decision. This is hard, right? This is really hard, but I'm going to finish. And so what did I do? I walked it. I walked the rest of it. I walked around the wall with the rope. <laughs> I put my foot in the mud so my shoes were muddy and then walked around the mud spot with a barbed wire. And I finished last for my heat. Okay, not last overall the whole day. Blash from my heat, and, uh, but I still was alive, thankfully, thankfully. But I took the easy way out. Did I endure? Not really. I mean, I didn't walk away, but I took the easy way out. And I think a lot of us in life, when we look at new relationships or new jobs or new whatever, we get really excited about things. We get fired up about things. We buy camo shirts and bandanas and new sunglasses and new shoes, and we're ready to go until we get in the middle of it, and we realize that it's really hard it's really uncomfortable, and we don't really want to be here very much. And so we tend to do one of two things. We tend to run away and give up or fight and make a conflict. M many of you are familiar with that acute response that God has wired us with. Here's a picture of your brain. Uh, you guys know about the acute stress response, the whole idea of, of fight or flight. There's actually a third category. It's freeze. So you can fight, you can fight, flight, you can freeze. And I think it's one of the beautiful things God has designed in us, right? You're out on a hike and you see a bear, right? God has designed your system to fight, run, or freeze. And what do they say when you come across a bear on a trail? What should you do? Freeze. We need to have a safety class. This is Colorado. You're supposed to freeze, just so you know. Now, if it's a mountain lion, you fight, okay? All right. Yeah. Okay, anyways. So, but the, the way your brain is, is, it triggers. When you get into these moments, your, your pupils dilate, heart rate picks up, your blood pressure kicks in, and your brain, depending upon you and the way you're wired, is you fight, you fly, or you, you freeze. One of the challenges I think we have in life is that so many of us live in an anxious state all the time with chronic stress, whether it's work or it's home, 
chronic stress in the news or social media. We don't ever unplug. And so we're almost always in this acute response system. We're always in this point. We're ready to fight, ready to talk to somebody, at co- a coworker. I'm at home with my, my spouse and with my kids. I'm ready to fight. Or I'm always ready to get out of there and slam the door. Or I just freeze and I don't do anything. And so the Mayo Clinic did a study and said, what happens when we are chronically in this acute response system to stress? And here's what it found. It said that that it it leads to these things, just just these things, anxiety, depression, stomach issues, heart problems, weight gain, and memory loss. It's no way to live your life. And that is the response to us living in this spot where we're always ready to fight or run away. But yet, it's interesting. We see this in our life, and we're like, well, that's not good for us, right? Can we all agree? That's not good for you to live in that way. But yet, we see this really pattern in, in, in what God has revealed to us about life and the way the world works is that there is always another hardship, another scary situation, another troubling health diagnosis around the corner. So you almost wonder, like, God, how am I going to live the way you say it's best for me Yet I'm always just facing scary, uncertain, difficult situations. How am I going to not be always acutely stressed and responding if this world around me is so broken, everything seems to be crumbling apart? What what am I supposed to to do? How, How do I have peace and joy and contentment like you say is possible? Well, it reminds me of this time that Jesus was sitting around with his disciples. And many of you might know, it's John 16, and Jesus is getting ready to get arrested. He's had the last supper with his disciples. He's had communion. He's sitting around talking with them about what it looks like to to live out their faith. And then he tells them that he's going to go away. Some bad stuff's going to happen. And that they're going to face some really hard times. And you can almost start to see, like, their, their, their eyes start to dilate. Like their heart rate starts to get pumping. Their blood pressure gets heavier. And they start to, to think, oh, man, what, what's going to happen? If you know the story, they end up, Peter fights, and then he flies, and bunch of the other guys freeze. And so Jesus tells them all these things. And he says, but take heart. Don't get too stressed because I'm here for you. And your heavenly father's here for you. And the Holy Spirit's here for you. And here's what Jesus says. He says all these beautiful things about being connected to the vine and um, having the peace because Jesus gives us peace. And then he says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take, take what church? Take heart. Why should we take heart? Because Jesus says that he has overcome the world. You know the reason that we are stressful most of the time is because our anxiety is causing us to think that we need to take over the world, that we need to solve the problems, that we need to fix what was broken, and that we start to think, well, man, I can't do it, so instead everything's going to fall apart. But Jesus says, hey, guys, everything's going to look like it's going to fall apart, but instead take heart. Be of good courage. Other translations say, because I have overcome the world. I love Psalm 30, verse 5. I I just want to read it for you. It says this, that weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. Like We're going to have weeping. We're going to have hard times in life. We're going to have difficult situations. But when you have Jesus walking alongside you, Joy comes in the morning. So I, I want to ask that question. Why don't we finish well? Why don't we end things well? Why do we walk away? Why do we blow up? Why do we freeze? Could it be that we just don't know how to endure? Somebody say endure. 
Somebody say persevere. Somebody say stand strong. Could it be that we're just not very good at this? I think the answer is probably yes for a lot of us. A couple weeks ago, we kicked off a series called Kingdom Come. And we're walking through the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we're seeing how God has told us one story from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. And we get into the book of Revelation and we see that this letter, turn there if you haven't yet, that this letter is written by the Apostle John to seven very real churches in around 90 to 95 A.D. You know what A.D. stands for, by the way? It's not after death. It's the year of our Lord in Latin. So now you guys know. You guys learned something today. So about 90 to 95 A.D., John writes this letter to seven churches, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Smyrna, Sardis, a couple others. And the idea was that this letter is going to circulate around all the churches. And then he kind of moves in this spot where he sees these visions about all these really strange things. And we try to interpret them from a 23rd, 2023 kind of view, 21st century kind of view, but we have to almost put ourselves back in context. Context is king. So we have to put ourselves back in 90 AD to try to understand some of what is happening here. And, and as we begin to jump in this, we see some really interesting things that tie back in. So what we're going to see today in Revelation 6 through 16 is the time known as the tribulation. Anybody heard that term before, tribulation? Really interesting kind of time. A lot, of, a lot has been written about the tribulation, a lot of theories about the tribulation. And it's led to a framework that Bible scholars call eschatology. Somebody say eschatology. It's, your, it's really the study or the theology around the end times. What happens at the end? What happens at the end of the Bible? What happens at the end of our lives? What happens at the end of time when Jesus comes back, right? That's eschatology. And so in this, there's these frameworks that have been built around when does Jesus come back? And is there this thing called the rapture of the church, which means the church is caught up and removed from earth? And then there's this thing called the day of the Lord. So it's really interesting stuff. And so as you begin to look into this, chapter uh, 6, through 16, you see, and Darren hinted at last week when you drew on the whiteboard, there's these three series of sevens. And so it's, it's really interesting. But I think what we see in this, and we're going to try to uncover today in about 25 minutes, is that deep at the heart of what we see here is this call to endurance. This call by, by Jesus to, to not run away, not be afraid, not be surprised at the hard things that happen in life, but to endure, to persevere, and to stand through, to, to stand strong. Because on the other side of that is beauty and strength and blessing. That in this world you will have trouble, Jesus says, but what? Take heart, because he has overcome the world. So I think there's so much we can take away, because if you walked in today and you're carrying stuff, you're in a spot where you're like, should I run? Should I stay? Should I fight? I think Jesus has something for you today. So I want you to listen. So flip with me, Revelation 6, real quick. Chapter 5, if you guys were with us last week, Darren did a good job of giving us this explanation. There's this picture of God on his throne and all these jewels and all these angels and all these creatures. And Darren basically said, hey, this is imagery that ties in the Old Testament to give you this picture that all creation worships God in heaven. That's the picture that we see. And in chapter 5, Darren hinted at this. There's this picture of God with a scroll in his hand. Now, you guys have all seen scrolls, probably, 
But back in the day, in the ancient world, scrolls were how, were how letters were written. Scrolls were what people read in the Old Testament synagogues. These letters that were sent around Asia Minor and, and, and Israel were written on scrolls. And often what a king would do is he would roll a scroll up well, the king didn't do it, but whoever the king's assistant was, he'd roll the scroll up, he'd wrap a string around it, and then they'd put a dollop of hot wax on the string where it connected, and then they'd have a signet. Sometimes it was a ring, sometimes it was a staff, sometimes it was like one of those barbecue paintbrushes, right? And they would just like, shh, and that would be the emblem. And so when you opened, looked at the scroll, it would be like, you know, this is Ron Bansell, right? King of Littleton, you know, or whatever. And so... You could only be authorized to open that scroll that was given to a certain person with status. And so in Revelation chapter 5, you have this picture. God on his throne has this scroll, and everybody's like, well, who can open it? Nobody can open it. And then John hears a lion, but he looks and he sees a lamb. He hears and he sees something different. And it's Jesus, and Jesus walks over, and everybody goes, Jesus is the only one that can open it. Well, why? Because Jesus is the one who came to the earth and took on the sins of the world and died on the cross. And when he rose from the grave, God bestowed all power and glory into Jesus' name. Philippians chapter 2. And so now we see Jesus like living out this glory, right, in heaven. Now he's able to go and he opens the scroll. And then we see this series of sevens, right? Notice this. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. John says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And so the next 10 chapters, he's opening these seals. And then there's these, just follow me. You don't have to understand this. Just, I got to tell you this real quick. There's three series of sevens. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, like doo, 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 and seven bowls, you know, bowls. And in these bowls, there's God's pouring out his judgment on the world, okay? So super confusing. We can't understand it in 20 minutes. But listen to the podcast later, and you'll understand more. But the, imagine these seven series of three, like, nesting dolls. Anybody ever been given a nesting doll? I actually have these at home. I was going to bring them, but then I thought Pete might break them, so I didn't. I didn't want to bring them. But it's a nesting doll, right? You open a doll, there's a little one. You open another one, there's a little one. And on the inside, is like a piece of chocolate or something. At, you know, it's like a little treat at the end. So imagine these sevens are like nesting dolls. When, when John tells us the vision he sees, he gets to the seventh seal, and then now he opens it up. Now there's seven trumpets. After the seventh trumpet is blown by the angels, now there's seven bowls. And so what's interesting is a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is the tribulation. The tribulation is seven years long, according to Daniel and some other, some other Bible scholars' interpolation of Scripture. And in this tribulation, you have this chronological series of events, right? You got boom, 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 right? All seven. But if you look at it, it's interesting. They all kind of tell the same story. So a lot of scholars think that actually the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls are the same thing. They're told just from different perspectives. Okay, so go back and read it. It's interesting. But with that framework in your mind that actually John's telling us the same thing three times just from different angles, but it actually comes to life. I encourage you guys to go read it. This way um, it may not be as confusing. It's still going to be confusing, but it might not be as confusing. And so John is opening this up. And so what, what I want to do today is I want to just kind of camp out real quick here and walk into this idea of Jesus' call for the church to endure. So 
This is kind of where we see the, the tribulation begin. So look, Revelation 6, I'm just going to point out a couple things real quick. So there's the seven seals in Revelation 6. He opens the first six. The first four are these four horsemen of war, conquest, famine, and death, a normal day in human history, right? Right, basically. The, 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 the idea of this scroll in, in these sevens is kind of John basically saying, hey, here's what happens from when Jesus rose from the grave to when Jesus comes back, right? Here, we don't know how long that's going to be. There's some theories on that. But if somebody ever tells you they think they know how long it's going to be, run because they're wrong, right? Jesus says he's, he's going to come back like a thief in the night. And so we don't know how long this is, but we know that we can look back over history and we can see lots of war, lots of conquest, lots of famine, and lots of death, right? The, the next seal, the fifth seal, and the sixth seal, you see this picture of Christians, believers who are suffering for their faith, which we know has happened since Jesus died until today, right? If you guys get the Voice of the Martyr magazine, you can read about people who are living in uh, Chad and Liberia and the Sudan and uh, the Yunnan province in China, and they're losing their life for their faith. It's very real. People are very really losing their life for their faith around the world. So we see that the five and six, seal five and six are happening all around us. They've been happening around us for 2,000 years. And then we get to the sixth seal, and this is the big one. This is what's referred to as the day of the Lord, okay? Now, I want to read this to you because this is the one that a lot of Bible scholars will say is coming in the future when basically God judges the sin of the world. So there's the tribulation, and then there's the great day of tribulation. And this is what, like, the minor prophets like Joel, big prophets like Isaiah, this is what they pointed towards. Read, read this. This is interesting. So Revelation 6, 12, it says this, that when he opened, Jesus opened the sixth seal. This is John. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And so this is a scary picture of judgment and a lot of it ties back to the Old Testament. Now, it's, it's, when you read on, I won't put it up for you. You can read it later, but we see that people go and hide. They start hiding in caves, and they start to say, who can stand? Notice this, verse 17. They say this, for the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? Okay, let me tell you what's going on here. So the people of the world are looking at everything. This picture of the moon and the stars and all this, this is just imagery for God's judgment on sin, right? And so the people of the world are going, well, who can stand against this? Like, who are the people that are going to make it out alive? And then we get Revelation chapter 7. Okay, so just hang that on your mind. Who can stand in the tribulation, the great day of God's judgment? Who's going to be able to make it out through all of this craziness and all this judgment on sin and brokenness? Who's going to make it out? Well, right here we see God actually push pause. We see John, he says this, and then John actually, before going back to this day of judgment, he actually pushes pause, and he tells us who's going to be able to stand. And I want you guys to take note, because this, really, this is really interesting. Some of you are familiar with some of this, and hopefully I can, I can unpackage um, it a little bit, unpack it a little bit, so we can understand more. So look at verse 7. Notice this. So John sees this scary picture of the world coming to an end almost, and people screaming out, who can stand? And then John sees this. He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea against my 
tree. So basically, he just says, I see these four angels standing. Quick note, this is not God saying that it's a flat earth, by the way. <laughs> Satellite signals, I'm pretty sure, are real. I'm pretty sure the pictures we have of the earth are real. Just, we can talk about that later. But anyways, the picture is that, that, that God is in control of the earth, okay? That God is in control of all the earth. All right, now check this out. Go to verse number two. He says, then I saw another angel standing, ascending from the rising of the sun with the, the seat of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Hold on to that. We're going to seal them on their foreheads. I pulled a few verses out just so you can see it all, right? That's interesting. And then he says this. He said, and who had been given power, I'm sorry, and I heard the number of the sealed. So remember, John hears now the number of the sealed. How many is it? It's 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And if you have your Bible out, you can actually look and see it looks like the book of Numbers. You guys, if you've read, if you've done the Old Testament reading plan, you guys have seen the book of Numbers gives these like military census all the time. So it's like 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Issachar, 12,000 from Dan. Actually, Dan's not on there. Uh, I'll tell you about that later. But 12,000 from, you know, Benjamin. So you have this military census given. And you start to wonder, okay, is this the army that God has sealed to fight a battle at the end of time? Right? It almost seems like that's what is going on here. It's just really interesting. 12,000 people from each tribe. What's 12,000 times 12? Mathematicians? 144,000. Does that number sound familiar to anybody? Well, we did just read it. But prior to that, does that familiar to anybody? Some of you may have had, say, a friend who grew up in the Jehovah's Witness Church or who um, grew up in that kind of, uh, uh, you know, theological framework. And uh, often the, you'll hear people who grew up in the Jehovah's Witness Church say hey, that, that heaven's going to be 144,000 people and that the Jehovah's Witness Church actually has about 6 million people in the church. None of them really know if they're one of the 144,000. And there's actually a day each year, I've heard this, don't quote me on this, but there's a day each year where they ask, hey, are you one of the 144,000? And nobody raises their hands, right? Like, what an arrogant thing to assume that you're one of the 144,000, which is why if you have any friends who are Jehovah's Witness or you maybe came out of the Jehovah's Witness Church, you know that the, the people who live out the Jehovah's Witness framework, like, they seem like really, really good people who walk on eggshells, who don't cuss, drink, or, or chew or hang out with guys or girls that do, right? Did your grandma ever tell you that one back in the day? So they, the reason why is because they, is this, their framework is only 144,000 people get to heaven. So we have to live really good lives so we earn our way in. Does that make sense? So this 144,000, is this a real number? Or is this made up? Not made up, symbolic. Because often in apocalyptic literature, which the book of Revelation is, numbers are symbolic. Okay, so I want, you, I want you to ask that question. Who are these 144,000? Are they what the Jehovah's Witness Church would say is that they're the people who are going to be in heaven someday? Are these, here's a couple other theories. Are these 144,000? I'm going to get kind of nerdy on you guys real quick. Are these 144,000 people, Jewish people, who got saved during the tribulation? That's what a lot of people think. 
are these 144,000 just Christians who got saved during the tribulation? Or is this a symbolic picture of the church? There's there's four options. I want you to, to ponder that for a second. So John, here's this number, 144,000. What does John see? Look at, verse, look, at, look at verse nine. And John says this, after this, I looked, okay? Now remember, early on, he saw a lot, he heard a lion, but he saw, what did he see? A lamb. Now he hears 144,000, but what does he see? Notice, after this, I looked and behold, behold is an old way of saying, hey, check this out, man. Right? Look, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. How many is it? A lot. It's not 144,000. We're probably talking billies, right? Billions. At least millions, right? But a lot. He said, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the, say it with me, tribes, peoples, languages. Is the gospel for everybody? Is the gospel an American thing? No. Did Jesus die for everybody? Yes. Is heaven going to look like you? No. Heaven's going to look like us, right? That's why we want our church to look like us, right? Diverse, beautiful. God made us all red and to bleed red with blue blood running through, blue oxygenless blood running through our veins, right? Our hearts and livers are the same color. Most of your lungs are the same color. <laughs> you guys will get that one later. <laughs> but on the outside, we're all this beautiful reflection of God's colors. That's going to be the beautiful thing of heaven. So, so John, here's 144,000. John sees a lot of people, right? So who, who is this? Who are the 144,000? I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to come up with your own opinions on this. I think it's a symbolic picture. I think the 144,000 is the symbolic picture of the church. And it's tied in with this idea of, of Israel being God's people. The believers in the church are God's people. And at this point, John sees this picture of all the people gathered around heaven, and he sees the church of every color, of every language, of every tongue, of every tribe, worshiping Jesus at God's throne. But there's something we need to see about this. Notice what this says about this group. He says this in verse 10. He says that they are all crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Right, so they're praising God at this picture in in time. And so these are the people that can stand against all the, the crazy stuff that's going on in the world. And why can they stand? Can they stand because they're good? Can they stand because they lived a, a good life? It's the same answer every time if you guys want to respond here. <laughs> can they stand because they've earned their way into God's favor? No. Why can they stand? Because they've been redeemed and rescued and forgiven and set free of their past, present, and future sins because of what Jesus did for them on the cross. And that is the same reality that's available to you and to me right now. Isn't that beautiful? That God doesn't make us wait to the end. That your, your beautiful reality starts the moment you say yes to Jesus. 
And that when you say yes to Jesus, he forgives you. He wipes you clean. You, you see that picture that, that they have right here? It says that, that they're standing before the throne. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Like when, when Jesus died on the cross and you said yes to him and you repented of your sin, God now sees you white as snow because he sees you through Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't see your sin once Jesus has forgiven you. He sees you like wearing a white robe imagery of the cleanliness that comes from the blood of Jesus. It's incredible. It's the greatest news in the history of the world and heaven. And so I, I think you see this, people, that, that this group can stand before the day of judgment because they've been redeemed because they trust in Jesus. And so just I think it's a clear picture of this idea of how do we finish well? How do we endure well? It's this. We have to have an enduring faith. And an enduring faith requires trust. An enduring faith re requires trust. And I think if we're honest, just about life, the reason that we struggle to endure, we're going to get honest for a moment, okay? The reason that we struggle to endure, we struggle to persevere, we want to walk away or fight or freeze, is because we struggle trusting that God's promises are true. We can verbally say we think they're true, but deep in your heart, we still have this belief that I need to make it happen. Now, you may not struggle with this. It just may be me. But we have this belief that I need to be the one that makes it happen. It's up to me to make sure I have this, what I need. It's up to me to make sure my family's taken care of. It's up to me to figure out, fill in the blank. And so we hear God's promises, but we're not really sure that we completely trust them or we don't live like we do. And we have this picture in our mind that life is a fairy tale. It's supposed to have this storybook ending. And then this moment hits where we wake up and we go, man, I'm not where I should be in life. I'm not where I thought I'd be in life. I'm not where I anticipated I'd be in life. So God, you have failed me. Or God, I have failed you. And we have trouble just realizing that, as Jesus said, this world, we are going to have trouble. This world has been broken by sin. It's been ravaged by sin. And when you don't have the worldview that understands how broken this world is, you begin to think that everything around you is about you. And you begin to think that every problem in your life is yours. Now, are many of the problems in our life ours? They are. And we can't fix them all on our own. But not everyone. And even if it is the consequence of our sin, we don't have the power to fix it. We have to trust that God does. And the only way that we will endure trials and hardships and difficult situations is trusting that Jesus has the ability to overcome it for us. Now, he doesn't tell us to sit on the couch and just wait. He doesn't tell us to sit at home and just hope that somebody IMs us or sends us a message on, on the gram. He tells us to put a step after a step and to be faithful. But we have to trust that he has the one, he's the one with the ability to overcome it. Look at Revelation 7, verse 14. He says this. They, they said, who are these people? Who are these people that are enduring? And it says this, that they are people coming out of the great tribulation. These are people who have lived through this really hard time, and they can stand. Why can they stand? Because they trusted Jesus as they went through the most difficult tribulation time in their life. Now, when does this happen? Is he talking about us? 
Is he talking about somebody in the future? Could this be something that already happened in the past? Now I need to talk about, really quickly, the rapture. Somebody say rapture. Okay, we got to talk about the rapture really quick. Now, what is the rapture? You guys know what the rapture is? Can I skip it? I'll probably just tell you. So the rapture is a word that means to snatch away. It's the idea that at one point, God is going to come and he's going to grab believers and take them out, right? And so the debate has been among scholars, when does this happen? Does God rapture? Does he come and snatch away the believers before the tribulation happens, before it gets hard? Does he come like halfway through the tribulation before the day of the Lord when it gets really hard? Or does he, Jesus come back someday and that's when the church unites with him? One of the kind of fundamental views that you'll often hear as churches is, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a super nerdy word, okay? You guys ready? It's called uh, a pre-trib view of the rapture. Somebody say pre-trib. Okay, so pre, what does that mean? Before, tribulation, right? So the idea is that Jesus comes back, takes the church away before the tribulation comes. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Things get ready to get hard. Jesus, I'm good, right? Just come on, come on, right? Because I know I'm getting out of here before things get a little messy, right? So, but that's kind of the view. Actually, back in, uh, let's see, what year was it? I think it was 1827. There was a guy named John Nelson Darby who first proposed this idea, the pre-trib rapture. And it's all based around this verse. Check it out. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. So Paul, the, the church in Thessalonica asks Paul. They write him a letter. Paul, what happens? We believe Jesus is coming back soon, Paul. What happens to Christians who die? who fall asleep. That's what they called it. So if you're a believer and you die before Jesus comes back, are you just like floating in the abyss? Like what, do you, what happens? And Paul says, hey, look, there's going to become this future day when Jesus returns and, and he's going to take those who are alive. Those who already die, they're already with him in heaven. So when you pass away, this is where we get our theological framework for heaven. When, you, when, when we pass away, our soul goes to be with Jesus in heaven. When you are a believer, when Jesus returns, then we get raptured, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so look here what Paul says. He says that when we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So this is the framework for the rapture. There's actually not any talk about the rapture in the book of Revelation, believe it or not. This is it. This is it. And so that's why there's so many theories around it. When does it happen? And like I said, the pre-trib rapture view is a very popular one today, okay? So as you think about this, though, I want you to just to kind of imagine this picture of what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the church catching up with Jesus. And so the question we've all been asking is when? When does this happen? Because if I know right now that I don't have to wait until the whole thing goes to heck in a handbasket, it's a little easier, man, if I have to endure all of this ugly stuff, then that's going to be pretty hard. So is Jesus telling us that he's going to come get us before it gets real hard? Or is he telling us that we need to stick around and be faithful? That's something we have to wrestle with. But remember, John wrote this letter to seven very real churches in a very real time when persecution was very real. And one of the things he says to the church is found in Revelation chapter 3. Notice this. Don't miss this. This is good. So John, writing to the church of Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, we're talking Asia Minor, right? Turkey, 
And he says this to them in 90 AD, okay? He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, the church in Philadelphia was just losing so much ground. They were losing their life for persecution and for their faith in Jesus, and they were standing strong. And so this is one of the churches that Jesus praises in this book. And he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay. Almost sounds like he's going to take them out, right? He's going to take them out. Could that be the rapture? He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hmm. That's interesting. The one who conquers will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. Okay, so Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, hey, stay strong because I'm going to keep you during the times of real tribulation and suffering and pain. What Jesus is saying here is that an enduring faith grows stronger through difficult days. The enduring faith grows stronger through difficulty. Notice the language here. He says, I will keep you. I will seal you. Remember, what, what did we see in Revelation 7? The people were sealed by God. He said, I want you to hold fast. That means to endure. I want you to conquer. Anytime you see the word conquer, it means to overcome. Paul says that we, are all, we can all conquer. How did Jesus conquer? He overcame the cross. There's this picture of endurance, of staying strong through the difficulty that means to conquer. And then the word temple, it's another word for the church. You guys are the temple. Us, collectively, are the temple. Okay, so put that all together. What is Jesus saying? You guys got it? Jesus is saying that God is going to seal us and keep us strong so that we can endure the difficult times that are to come. Notice this, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Paul says this. He says that we can have glory in our sufferings. How do we have glory in our sufferings? I think we have a scripture for this. Romans chapter 5. It's not on there. He says that we can have glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to give you an illustration for what this looks like. You guys love when I break stuff. <laughs> Think about it like this. In life, when we experience hard times and challenges, it's like life's putting pressure on you, right? And you start to bend. But we can't bend. We can only bend so much. And so what happens as we begin to feel the pressure? Well, we, we, we assume we're going to snap. We start to hear the, the crackle, right? And so what, what happens? Well, we respond. We flee. We lose our mind and we fight or we freeze because we're afraid that we're going to snap under the pressure of life. But one of the things that we see that Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia is that as you endure, you get stronger and you begin to trust that I'm going to keep you strong for when the hard times really come. And so rather than us just snapping really easily, we begin to realize that when we have our faith strengthened by Jesus, that we can bend a lot before we break, that we can, we can experience a lot before we break, that because of the strength that Jesus has, because we've gone through it before, 
because we didn't fall down the last time, we can bend so much before we start to break. That's this idea of like an enduring faith. Like as you guys go through life and you trust and you don't give up and you don't run away and you stay in the game, you begin to see how much flex you actually have in your life that you're not going to break, that you're not going to succumb to the pressure. And so therefore, stay in it. Stick around. Don't run. Don't fight. And don't freeze. But stay firm. Does that make sense, church? Jesus gives us that ability. And so I want you to see how this all comes together. Notice Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. So Jesus says to the church of believers, who I think what Jesus, what, what Jesus is saying here is that the rapture isn't happening before the tribulation, that the church endures, that whoever is alive at the time when the tribulation comes, whether that happened a thousand years ago, it could have, whether that happens a thousand years from now, it may, that Jesus is saying that as you go through the challenges in life, the hard times in society endure, stay strong and persevere because I will keep you and I will seal you and I will give you the strength. So notice how this whole thing ends in Revelation 7, verse 15. And it says this, that therefore they are before the throne of God. John sees this vision and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence and they shall hunger no more. They neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The picture John sees, guys, is that when you endure through the hard times of life, that you have a beautiful reality in future, that one day you will be with Jesus, the one who loved you so much he gave his life for you, and he will wipe away every tear, and he will give you living water to drink. You see the picture there? Refreshment and beauty and all that God has promised our souls. And so I think this is what God wants us to walk away with today is that an enduring faith knows that Jesus is working to make all things right, that he is at work, and that no matter how hard your situation is today or tomorrow or in the future, Jesus will not let you break. And if you stay firm and you endure, you're going to see that beautiful reality someday. I want to close with a quick picture. Here's a picture of my friend Patty Fouts. Patty, I used to work with Patty. This is her husband Bill at their 50th wedding anniversary. And a few months ago, the Lord called Patty home after a long fight with cancer. But one of the things that if you ever knew Patty and you ever met Patty, was you know that she was a warrior and she knew about endurance. You see, Patty got diagnosed with cancer 12 years ago. And for 12 years straight, she fought cancer. She would beat it, it'd come right back. She would beat it, it'd come right back. For a dozen years, a dozen, she was in and out of chemo. She was in and out of radiation. She felt terrible. Yet every day she got up and she went to work. And every day she got up and she loved her family. And every time you would talk to her and you would say, hey, Patty, how you doing? She'd smile and she'd say, well, I guess God's not done with me yet. And it was her example that led so many people to find strength because they saw that she had it. And she had it because she knows what Jesus did for her and that he was going to keep her 
and never let it break. Do you realize that when you stay strong in your trials and in your hardships, that's a, a testimony that God uses to tell others? See, when, when, when you have a hard time and you don't flee, you don't freeze, you don't run away, you don't fight, but you stand strong and you endure in your faith, do you know what that says to everybody around you? It says that Jesus is enough, that Jesus won't let you break. You're gonna bend, but he's not gonna let you break. And so I don't know where you're at right now or what you're walking through or the challenges that you face, but here's what I do know that Jesus is telling us today is that you shouldn't give up. That, that thing you wanna quit, don't quit. That relationship you wanna walk out of, if there's a way to save it, Jesus wants you to save it. That job you're ready to blow up on your boss or your coworker and make a mess, Jesus is saying, hang in there. Pursue what is right. Pursue me. And I will give you the strength to do all these things the right way. So I think we have two choices that we have to make as believers. And the first one, we, we can just sit around and wait for Jesus to come back and hope he gets us out of here before it gets hard. And we can do our holy huddles or we can sit under a tree with our Bibles and just pray, God, come back and get me. But the second choice is to endure, to stand strong, to link arms together and to push forward and know that Jesus is never gonna let us break. He's gonna be with us every step of the way and that your standing strong will be a testimony to everybody in your life that God is good and that Jesus is always enough. So what choice are you gonna make? Would you pray with me?